was great. Emma. Harmonizing. <laughs> All right, good morning. Uh, let's get started. This, can you turn me down a little bit? Whoever's back there. Let's get started this morning um, by praying together as we begin Adult Sunday School. Um, Father, we are grateful for, for Palm Sunday. We're thankful for how your son um, did not. Um, slip into Jerusalem anonymously. He did not um, go in um, uh, without anyone noticing, but he went up as a king, um, even as the king of Israel, um, because he knew that was his calling and his vocation, and that part of that vocation, a central part of that vocation, was, in fact, to give his life for the people who praised his entry on Palm Sunday. Um, Father, we're thankful for his um, his willingness to enter into suffering, um, even on our behalf, for his passion and his death and his resurrection. Uh, this morning, Father, as we prepare our hearts even for worship in about an hour, we pray that you would dwell with us now by your Spirit as we study um, another part of your Word, the book of James. We pray you do this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, so this spring, we are um, going through the book of James. I'm just kind of doing a, a large group Bible study, basically. Um, this is about the third or fourth week now. Your bag? Yeah, come get it. It's fine. You're fine. Welcome. That was great, Naomi. Thank you. It's excellent. Um, and so we started three or four weeks ago. We we're just kind of moving slowly through the book of James. Um, we covered last week all the way up through verse 8 of chapter 1, and we're hopefully we'll cover at least 9 through 18 this morning. That's my goal at least. So, so first, just, uh, just a little bit of review. Um, we've talked some about potential candidates for the authorship of James. Um, who are the two primary candidates um, for um, writing the letter of James? Who are the two primary candidates? Brother Jesus, James the brother of Jesus, yes. And which other James have we talked about? Son of Zebedee, yeah. Yeah, brother of John, who was an apostle. So we've talked about those two men, how they're both potential candidates for the letter of James. Um, we've also talked about um, sort of a, a, a time frame for when James might have been written. What, what are, what have we, how have we talked about that? When might James have been written? Yeah, it might have been written very, very soon, even after some of the persecution that arises in the book of Acts. And we've looked at some of the, how some of the key words that are used in Acts 9 and Acts um, 11 are repeated um, in the book of James and even in the beginning, the idea of um, James writing to the dispersion, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel in the dispersion, that's the same word as translated scattering um, in Acts 9 and Acts 11 to refer to uh, the scattering of the Jewish Christians out of Jerusalem because of the persecution that arose on the day in which Stephen was stoned. Um, and so it may very well be um, that James was written early. There's a few other reasons for that. What are some of the other textual reasons that we think James may have been written to the, a very early church audience, even the first decade after the death and resurrection of Jesus? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, it's written generally, which would fit with that idea of the Christians are, there's not really a lot of established churches yet. They're just kind of going into new cities and, and trying to figure out life there. Yeah, what else, Eric? Yeah, I think, I think textually this is another really important reason that they're, 
as you often will see in Paul's letters, of course, which are written a bit later, um, there is no mention here of the tension that would arise in the church between the Jews and Gentiles and Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians and how they were to live together and whether or not uh, Gentile Christians needed to keep uh, the Mosaic law in order to be good Christians, good followers of Jesus. So none of that is mentioned in James, which, which probably I think means that it was written to a largely Jewish audience who weren't dealing with these problems. And we know that the church in the first decade after um, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus was primarily Jewish. Um, it was only after um, the rejection of the Jews, um, even of the gospel, that the gospel began to go um, to the Gentiles in, in force and began to create some of those dynamics that the church had to work through in, in places like the Jerusalem Council and elsewhere. Um, and also, what is one of the big themes that James deals with? What are some of the big themes of the book that might connect to that early audience? What, is, what are the people experiencing, does it seem, James? The persecution and suffering, right? Um, there, there is a a strong theme in James of testing and trial and suffering and, and difficulty. And, and that, of course, fits with that, with that or really fits with all the 40 years after um, Jesus' death, but, but certainly fits with that first decade. Um, and, and even the, in, the need for integrity in your faith, right? That is one of the big themes that we talked about in James, this idea, what is true faith? True faith is a faith that is tested and perseveres. And you can see how that message would resonate with that early church. Um, and, and, and even, as we're going to see today, um, James talks also about the goodness of God, the goodness of God, that God is good to his people, even in the midst of their suffering, even in the midst of the persecution that they're experiencing. Um, so those are just some of the things that we've talked about. Um, remember that we, we looked at verses 2 um, through 7, or 2 through 8, um, several weeks ago. Um, James begins the body of his letter by writing, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness. This is um, the, the goal of the Christian life, is to be steadfast and immovable, to, um, to trust in the Lord. And let steadfastness have its full effect, James says, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is one of the things I love about the letter of James is this emphasis that James puts on maturity as an aspect of the Christian life. Sometimes as believers, we, um, we really emphasize sort of the moment of conversion or salvation and as if the entire Christian life is encapsulated and, and captured um, in that, making that decision for Christ. But, but all of us know that it's good. We need to make a decision for Christ, of course, and put our trust in him. But then what about the rest of our Christian lives, whether that's 10 years or 20 or 30 or 40 or however many the Lord has for us? Um, the goal for that period of time is for us to grow in maturity, maturity, to become like Jesus, to be conformed to his image, to bear the fruit of his spirit. And James gives us a great pathway for that process that we refer to as sanctification um, in theological terms, but really just has to do with what does it look like to be a Christian for an extended amount of time in the midst of the brokenness of this world. It means to grow in maturity and wisdom. Um, then in verses 5 through 8, I'll read this again just so it's before us before we jump into new material. James goes on and he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. 
For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So a few points to make out of this um, passage that we talked about several weeks ago. First, this idea of wisdom. We can connect this idea of wisdom with maturity, um, that, that just as maturity is the goal of the Christian life, so also is wisdom. This is a, a very prominent Old Testament theme, of course. We see it in Proverbs. We see it in the life of Solomon. We see it all throughout the Old Testament, really. And I think one of the questions that James answers is, how is it that God gives to his people wisdom? How do you grow wise, biblically speaking? What do you have to experience? Suffering, <laughs> testing, trials. Think about the book of Job, right? The wisdom that he grew in um, through his experience. Um, uh, John Berger gave us a great um, overview of the book of Job last week in our sermon. Uh, that Job, Job began with, a, with certainly a trust in God and his goodness, but it was pretty easy because things were pretty easy. And then he had to go through this period of testing and trial. And God stripped every good thing away from him. And he learned in that that God's goodness is not dependent upon his circumstances, that God um, is who he is, irregardless of of what the particulars of his life is. And, and, and Job learned to trust in the Lord in a, in a fundamentally different way uh, by the end of the book of Job. And of course, the end of the book of Job ends with the Lord blessing him and giving him even more than he started with. And that's a picture of the growth, the maturation that Job experienced in that period of trial and suffering. And so, so I think one thing about this verse, if anyone ask, of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously and it will be given him. I would say that's an absolutely true promise that James gives us there. But we also have to be aware of what that means. If we ask God for wisdom, if we ask God to be made like Jesus, if we ask God um, for maturity, um, it's very likely that the way the Lord will do that is not simply, you know, he's not just going to zap us with the Holy Spirit. He's going to bring us through valleys. He's going to bring us through dark valleys. He's going to bring us through difficulty and suffering. Because that is how the Lord teaches maturity and, and wisdom to his people. Remember Hebrews 5, verse 8. We talked about this two weeks ago. What is Hebrews 5, 8? Jesus learned obedience through what? Through suffering, right? Jesus learned obedience through suffering. And if that was true for Jesus, if that was how Jesus learned to obey his Father, um, then that is certainly how we are going to also going to learn to obey our Father. And then James goes on, he talks about this idea that you have to ask in faith if you want wisdom, if you want maturity, if you want to be made like Jesus. You can't be double-minded, you can't be driven about by the, by the wind and the waves. And of course, this may point back to the Gospels and the story of Peter and how Peter thought he wanted to walk on the water, right? Um, and then he didn't want to walk on the water anymore and he needed to be delivered and saved. I mean, it's also just a picture of, you know, this is the danger of stepping out on this path of following Jesus. Um, you have to be single-minded. You can't uh, be double-minded. Um, you have to follow through. And that really, that's the emphasis of the book of James, um, to not be double-minded, that this is what true maturity, true wisdom is, is to be single-minded, to have integrity. Uh, think about James 2. You have the, the sin of partiality, right? They're treating the rich man one way, the poor man a different way. That's double-mindedness. Think about the exposition of faith and works, right? Uh, James says, if you have faith, then you're also going to have good works. He's saying you can't be double-minded. You can't say, you know, I love God, but I'm not going to obey his law. That doesn't work. That's being double-minded. Think about chapter 3. 
James talks about the way that we use our tongues. He says, um, can um, good water come from a, from a foul place, right? No. Um, the, out of the outflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, as Jesus puts it. Um, but you, you, we cannot bless God with one, one, one hand with our tongues and then curse men with the other. That's being double-minded. That's not being in, having integrity. Um, all throughout the book of James, this is one of the major emphases, this idea of single-mindedness and its connection to true maturity and true wisdom. All right, so that brings us to some new material. Any questions before we jump into verse 9 and continue throughout today? Any questions or comments? All right, let's, let's listen here to God's Word and talk about it together. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, James says, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. All right, let's think about these several verses here, and especially in the context in which we've been discussing this overall argument and theme that James has. What jumps out to you here? What's interesting? Sounds like Proverbs. It does sound like Proverbs. It does. Um, James is there using a, a natural metaphor, right? A metaphor from creation to refer to um, the way in which um, people either thrive or don't thrive um, as time passes by. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. What else? What else stands out here? Yeah, Eric. Good. Yeah, I, I, as I've prepared this week, I thought so. I think that's a great connection. So Isaiah 40. This, this seems pretty likely to be part of what James is doing here, is, is echoing the words of Isaiah. Isaiah 40, verse 6 through 8. Y'all know this, but I'll read it. Um, Isaiah says, A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of Yahweh blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Um, and of course, Isaiah is there talking about the um, the way in which um, the, what humans do is impermanent. It doesn't last. It fades away. And that's really one of the big themes of the Old Testament, right? Think about Psalm 90. Um, talks about how we're like grass that, that blossoms in the morning with the dew and then fades away by the end of the day. That's what a human life is like. Um, this, this idea of, 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 of the, the temporariness of, of life, human life, by comparing it to, um, to vegetation is a pretty prominent thing. You see um, really a lot of places in those scriptures. So what, what is the dichotomy that's being made here um, in, in this, this passage? Who is the lowly brother? Who is the rich? Is James talking only about wealth here in terms of the amount of dollars you have in your bank account or is he talking about something else? Yeah, Jeremy. It does. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says. Yeah, the meek shall inherit the earth. I agree. I think this is definitely picking up on, on uh, uh, parallels with the Sermon on the Mount and some of the things that are talked about there. Certainly the lowliness here is not only financial. I think it's more about a posture and life. It's about humility. I think it's also right for us to read. I mean, I'm going to encourage us to read all of James, even though James does not use the, the, word, the name Jesus a lot. He uses it twice, actually, in his epistle. Um, I think there's a, a strong case to be made that James should be read very Christocentrically. And I think um, that, that um, when he, in verse 12, when he talks about blessed is the man here, when he talks about the lowly brother, um, what he, he's really, he's talking about, he's exhorting believers to be like this, but he's also speaking Christologically. This is, Jesus is, of course, um, the lowly brother who boasts in his exaltation, right? That's what Philippians 2 is all about. Um, that Jesus humbles himself, and after a time, God raises him up and gives him the name that is above every name. Um, and so I think that he is here, James is here exhorting his, his readers um, to follow in the way of Jesus, to be like him, to, um, to boast um, in their lowliness because they will be exalted. Um, and also, if you look into verse 6 of chapter 2, um, remember chapter 2, we're going to look at that in, a, in several weeks, um, is about how um, James is, is pushing back on the church and how they're dealing with the rich and the poor differently, or at least are tempted to do that. Um, and, and they're tempted to curry favor with the rich. And then he says in, in verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor man. And again, I think that statement has a double meaning. It's not only about the, um, the poor man that comes in their midst literally, it's also about dishonoring Jesus, dishonoring the, the real poor man. And then he says this, are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? What's he talking about here? Who are the ones, who are the rich ones who are oppressing Christians, who are dragging them into court, who are blaspheming the honorable name of Jesus by which they are called in this period of time? What's that? Pharisees. Yeah, yeah. They're Jewish people who are trying to eliminate this heretical sect that has arisen in their midst, that is built around this idea that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah and that he was crucified and raised from the dead. This is what you see, right, in the book of Acts, um, that the, the, the Jewish religious leaders decided very early on, after the apostles began to go around and say that Jesus was risen from the dead, that this was a, a direct threat to their power, to their stability, and they were going to wipe it out. Um, and so you see that in Jerusalem there in the beginning part of Acts, and then you see it really elsewhere throughout the book of Acts as Paul goes into city by city, as he goes into Corinth, as he goes into Philippi, as he goes into Ephesus. Um, who, is, who is raising up the opposition to him? Who is riling up the city? Who is going to the Romans and saying, you need to take care of this problem. These guys are going around and say they hate Caesar, et cetera, et cetera. Who's doing that? The synagogue Jews, Right. The Jew, and if you read the book of Acts, it's very consistent um, that the, the Jews already in the city who are not interested in the preaching of the good news, they're the ones who are um, doing the things James talks about here. They're the ones who are uh, pressing. They're the ones who are dragging Christians into court. Um, they're the ones who are certainly blaspheming the name of Jesus by which they're... And so I think, I think this connection here is not just about wealth. It's also... Con and although it is, it is right to say that in many of these cities... Uh, the Jews had some influence and wealth and power, which is why they could go to 
the Roman government and say, hey, you need to do something about this. And they would usually listen, at least do something. They wouldn't do everything the Jews want them to. But so so this, the wealth here is not simply about, you know, if you have a big bank account, you need to watch out. Of course, there are temptations that come with a big bank account that we need to be um, aware of. And really, all of us as Western Christians need to be aware of. We all fit into the big bank account category. Um, uh, and so we need to be careful about that. But I think we also should read this in turn contextually and say this is primarily talking about this dichotomy between um, those who are associating themselves with Jesus, who are trusting in him, and, and, and those who are rich and powerful and were oppressing the followers of Jesus. And so James is here making a promise, really, um, to his readers that, that you may be losing right now. You are losing right now, right? Um, but that's not going to last forever. The rich brother is going to pass away. Or not the he doesn't, notice he doesn't refer to the rich. He says, let the lowly brother, which is a connection, right? Brother is not just a, you know, a family title. It's a, it's a spiritual statement that the lowly brother, he doesn't refer to the rich as a brother. Let the brother, the lowly brother, um, boast in his exaltation, even, I mean, it's the same kind of ideas, you know, the jars of clay, right? And, and, and second Corinthians that, that boast in this, boast in your suffering, boast in the fact that you're losing um, because you're going to win because the, the rich and the powerful, the Jews who are pressing you now are going to fade away. They're not going to last. I promise you that day is coming. Yeah, Eric. Yeah, Psalm 2. right. Yeah, that's right. That occurs very early in the book of Acts, maybe Acts 4, I think. Um, yeah, the, the apostles are praying to God and they're quoting Psalm 2 and saying, and yeah, they're associating the, 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 what Psalm 2 seems to be speaking about, the kingdoms of the world, um, riling, you know, raising their fists against Yahweh. They're, they're connecting that to what the Jewish leaders of their time are doing. Yeah, it's a great connection. Yeah, Jeremy. Yep. Sure. Yes. Yeah, absolutely, and that's that's that. Of course, is one of the the, the dangers with the scriptures is that we can easily pluck verses out of context and read our own sense of what they mean, and that's why into them, which is why it's so important to try to read all of the scriptures contextually in terms of the um, the movement of the scriptures as a whole, the the original context, those kinds of things. Yeah, that's right, and that's what we're trying to do here with James is is bring a consistent approach. And hopefully, I, my, certainly my understanding of James is not that it's a bunch of sort of disconnected sayings stitched together. Um, 
you know, that are just sort of wisdom sayings, but there, there's a cohesive argument. There's a flow of thought that's happening here. And by the way, I think the same thing about Proverbs. I don't think Proverbs is a bunch of disconnected sayings either. Did I say a hand? No? Okay. Yeah, Alexis. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's a great summary. It's certainly one of the biggest themes of the scriptures is that overturning of the natural order of things, right? It's interesting, even you think about the book of Genesis, um, who does God always seem to end up choosing, the older brother or the younger brother? Younger brother, right? Um, and especially in, in that context, that would have been very confusing and, and odd. But if you think about it, right? Isaac is a younger brother. Um, Jacob is a younger brother. Um, Judah, who's the line that the Messiah comes through, is a younger brother. Um, all, all the, you know, Joseph is a younger brother. All, all these, the, and this is the kind of thing the Lord does. This is, and of course, this is why Mary and, and Luke 1 sings the Magnificat, right? That, that the Lord has, as you just put it, has, is tearing down the mighty and lifting up the humble, right? He is, I mean, Mary is there singing for us, praying for us, and summarizing um, what Jesus is going to do. And he's going to be the ultimate example of this. You know, Jesus goes to the cross uh, naked and condemned and powerless, um, and those who have power are crowing about it over him. Um, and yet, um, within three short days, there's going to be a great reversal, right? There's going to be a twist that no one saw coming, um, that the, the, the one who is um, poor and weak and helpless is going to be lifted up and given all authority, um, as he says in Matthew 28. And those who opposed him are going to be um, judged and torn down. This is, this is the great movement of the scriptures, and so it's not surprising to see it here. All right, let's, let's continue to move on and see if we can make it, continue to make progress here. So I'll read 12 through 15. Blessed is the man. What does that remind you of, just real quick? Beatitudes. And I hear a Psalm 1 out there as well. Well, yeah, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man, right? Reminds you of both. I should remind you of both, I think. Blessed is the man. Psalm 1, blessed is the man. And also points to the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Blessed is the man. So James is giving us a kind of beatitude, but he puts his own spin on it. Who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, who is the man who remained steadfast under trial and received the crown of life? Jesus, right? Okay. I think it's important for us to see that. Um, that James here is talking about, um, uh, he is giving us um, instruction for our lives, but he's also pointing to Jesus. And then, and it's, I think the key question here is how is, and this points back to what Jeremy was saying, these verses are often sort of taken out, and it's fine, we can learn things about temptation and sin, and how those things work and where it comes from um, based on these following verses. But how does this relate? How does this section relate to the overall context and flow of thought in this first chapter? That's the question I want us to wrestle with. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. 
But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he stood the test, he received the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. I think the main thing to emphasize there is that this is a kind of purpose statement for the book of James. This is kind of a description of the the fundamental thesis and argument that James is making. Um, That when you are under trial, when you are experiencing suffering, when you are being tested, you are actually blessed. You are actually blessed. And of course, this goes back again to the Old Testament, right? What was the great argument in the book of Job that his friends made to him? What did they say? You're experiencing suffering in your life, therefore, you've sinned. You're not blessed. You're being cursed by God. This is, it's, it's obvious, right? Why are we even arguing about it? Um, that was basically what they're saying again and again. And, and, and Job pushes back and says, I... I have searched my heart. I do not fully understand this, but I can say that I didn't do anything to deserve this. And then by the end of the story, who is revealed to be blessed? Job. And who's not blessed? It's friends, right? They're, they're exposed as slanderers and, and deceivers. Um, and I, I think this, this is what is fitting in here, um, that, that this is really one of the primary arguments of the book. This is why James says, count it all joy in the second verse, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You count it all joy because your trials are not evidence of God's absence or his posture against you, but actually of his love for you. And, and this, is, this is, I mean, you see this all throughout the New Testament, right? You see it exemplified in the life of Jesus. He is, of course, the one um, who shows us that uh, when we experience suffering, we are actually blessed and can count it all joy. Um, and then the rest of the New Testament is a working out of this. You know, think about First Peter and, and First Peter 2 and how he, he is telling the Christians, you know, who are suffering to, to imitate Jesus, to remember that, that they're suffering now, but, but they need to remember that Jesus also suffered and their suffering is, is an imitation of him. It doesn't mean that God has turned his back on you. He didn't turn his back on Jesus. He sustained him. He loved him to the end. Um, you think about, you know, the book of Hebrews that, that works through this and this, the, the, you know, the, the Christians that are being tempted to fall back um, into ju- worship, of, into Judaism, uh, because they look at the Jews and feel like, well, the Jews are winning. We want to be on the winning side. And, and Hebrews is saying again and again, no, that's not the winning side, right? Um, you, you are on the winning side, even though you don't realize it right now. Um, I, think, I think this is just a really important um, uh, point as we think about that lens for the book of James. All right, I want to I move into, real quick, and I want to move into the rest here as well. Well, let's, let's think about it in context. I think this will be helpful for us. So if, if you're in the midst of trials, if you're being tested, if you're suffering, why would James begin to talk about temptation? 
and, and encourage. What, what, what is the temptation going to be facing in that context? To curse God and die, right? To doubt the character and nature of God. And you might even say, God is bringing suffering in my life. He, what is going on? He deserves it, right? He's tempting me to curse him, right? He's tempting me to turn my back on him. And I, I think this is the connection here. This is, I mean, this does speak, of course, to, to temptation generally in all of its forms, but I think the temptation that the, the readers of James's epistle are experiencing at this time and place is primarily about um, what is God like? What is God like in his posture towards me? And he's saying, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Um, so I think what James is saying here is basically if, if you are, are, are tempted to, to doubt God's nature, his love for you, it's, it's not on God. It's not his fault. Um, it's something within you. It's something within your nature, your, your brokenness, your bentness um, against the natural order of things. I mean, even think back into the beginning in the garden, right? Um, where does Satan go after um, Adam and Eve, where does, where does he poke into Eve's, the chinks in her armor when he says um, to her, he says, uh, what does he say? He says, um, has God really said, you know, don't, don't eat this. Um, if you do eat of it, you won't die. Um, actually, um, you'll, be, you'll be wise. You'll be made like him. What, what, is, he, what is he basically doing there? What, what is he questioning? Who is he questioning? God, right? He's questioning the character and the nature of God. Is God good? Is he doing a shell game with you, Eve? Is he telling you one thing and he's got it behind his back? It's actually a different thing. And I think that's what, that's what the kind of thing that James is talking about here, that this is, in many ways, this is the fundamental temptation. All temptation arrives from the temptation to believe that God is not good, that he does not love us, that he does not want to give us good things, right? That's, that's why we sin, because we want, to, we want what God says we can't have, and we don't think he's right. Right? We actually think that this will be a good thing in the moment. Yes, sir. Todd. Right. That's a great point. Yeah, it's connected. Yeah, Jesus deals with that, and all of Jesus's the temptations are about the character of God. That's why he's quoting Deuteronomy. He's quoting Scripture back to the devil. Um, even you think about the Garden of Gethsemane, the temptation there, in a sense. You know, he, he's he's wanting to avoid the cross, and according to his human nature, at least, and, and yet says, "I know that my Father is good, and I'm going to submit to His will and trust Him, even in the midst of this." And Todd is making the point that that is connected to this whole double-mindedness that um, that what he you know. Is God good or isn't he? Um, and that temptation is to be double-minded in terms of how we think about God's character and his nature. That one moment he's good, one moment he's not good. One moment he's there, one moment he's absent. And true wisdom, true maturity is to be confident that the Lord is good, and that he's always with us, um, regardless of our situation, regardless of what is being brought into our lives. Yeah, that's great. I think there's also a connection here to Genesis 4. Remember, you think about the Lord coming um, um, to Cain and his temptation, he says, sin is crouching at your door, right? Um, and he wants you. He wants to ha master you. I think that is a picture that's being 
emphasized here um, that, that you know, God was not tempting Cain. It was Cain's own nature, his own desire that was tempting him to kill his brother. Um, of course, this teaches us some things about the nature of God. Um, God cannot be tempted by evil or cannot use evil to tempt others because he is not evil, right? He is, he is absolutely good. Um, and so um, it would be impossible um, for that to be the case. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And of course, that connects really closely with that story of, of um, Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, right? Desire, when it is conceived, Cain's desire to have place of prominence, to be um, the one who is lauded by God in place of his brother. Um, it, it brings forth sin. It gives birth to sin, right? He, he, he hates his brother and his heart, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. In this case, literal death in the story of Cain and Abel. He takes him out into the field and kills him. But it also points back to um, who else talked about, um, uh, you know, uh, anger and hatred in our hearts being connected to death. Who made that connection? Jesus, right? In the Beatitudes, right? Jesus says, if you hated your brother in your heart, you're guilty of murder, right? And, and it, that's right. I mean, that, that is the logical extension, right, of, of all envy, of all hatred, of all anger, is to kill the person, right? That, that's where it goes, that's, that's the end of it. That's the fruition. And that's what James is bringing forth here is, is this idea that, um, that, that you know, sin, as it grows, matures into something. And it connects with the whole idea of maturity, right? Um, the, your, your sin, your desire, the temptation to give into these things will either manifest itself in death, where there's a contrast there. Remember, he's just talked about, blessed is man who remains steadfast under trial because after he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life there's life on one hand, and then if you give, give place to desire, which gives birth to sin, will bring forth death, right? There's the other contrast, and you see it within a few verses here. I don't think that's an accident. Um, James is setting up a, a choice between life and death here, which has a little bit of a biblical history as well, right? <laughs> um, you see this all throughout. You see this in the, the, the way that Moses addresses the people of Israel, right? Choose today life or death. Um, you know, are you going to serve the Lord? Are you going to rebel against him? I think with the end of the book of Joshua, um, et cetera, et cetera. This is the way, this is the great contrast. Think of the teaching of Jesus, right? There's a narrow way and there's a broad way. Uh, one leads to good things, one leads to destruction. Um, life and death um, are, are what's at stake here. And let me continue to read here so we can make it through verse 18. James goes on to say, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And, and here's the question. What is the deception in the context of the flow of argument of verses 12 through 18? Um, what might his readers be deceived about? The Father giving good gifts, whether or not God is good. And I mean, I, and I don't want to be too hard on James's readers here. I mean, you can sort of understand, right? Jesus, they believe, is the Messiah of Israel. Jesus, they believe, was raised from the dead by the Father and sent the Holy Spirit and is indwelling them and given them the Great Commission. And they are on the right side. That's what they believe. But they look around them, and that's not working out, right? They're losing. They're getting their butts kicked, right? They're being dragged into prison. They're losing 
Um, you're losing their property, their people are dying, right? And, and so you can understand that there, there, is a, there is a contrast here that's happening um, that, that is not consistent. So you can understand why they would begin to doubt, well, maybe God was one way towards Jesus and a different way towards us, right? Uh, maybe, maybe we missed something along the way. Maybe God is double-minded. Um, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And again, you see that, that reference to brothers, one of, the, one of the, the frequent themes of this book is that address, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. The Father of lights. And there I think James is connecting, I mean, he's talking about um, um, you know, Matthew uh, in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about to his disciples, let your light shine before men, right? You're called to be a city on the hill, right? If, if, if the disciples are lights, who is the Father? The Father, Father of lights. He's also connecting back to Genesis 15 um, where God takes Abraham outside and he, he, it's dark and he points him up to the sky and what does he say? Number the stars, right? So your descendants, right? He's connecting... Um, these, these people, back to that story, the Father of Lights um, refers, I think, at least to those things and likely to other connections um, throughout those scriptures. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of Lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So what is James pushing back against here? What's he wanting his readers to believe? God is not double-minded. God is good. God is good. That's right. That's right. That's summarized really well. Yeah. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. And of course, this is what we see in our confessional documents. Um, as Reformed believers, um, we refer to this as God's providence, right? That all things come from God's hand in our lives. It's not like there's some epic war being waged between God and Satan, and sometimes Satan is winning, and sometimes God is winning. We know Satan is winning when bad things are happening to us. We know God is winning when good things are, that's, you know, all things, right? Whatever, right? I love the way that Heidelberg puts, I can't quote it from memory, but the Heidelberg talks about how believing God's providence means that whatever comes to our lives, whether, whether harvest or, or, or famine, um, whether health or sickness, um, you know, whether um, um, things that are, that are easy or things that are hard, all things come to us not by chance, but by our Father's hand. Uh, I love that because it personalizes it, right? That providence is not this some kind of like epic cosmic game of, you know, whatever, God pulling on strings up there, but it's like a father handing things to his children, each thing that comes into our lives. It's that personal. Um, it's that intimate. It's that intentional, right? It's, it's not by chance. It's as if by a father's hand that we receive whatever it is that comes into our lives. And that, that is the kind of thing that James is exhorting his readers to truly believe about their father, to not be tempted, not be deceived, not believe that God is double-minded, um, but that God is good all the time. All the time he is good, even in the midst of trials, and this gets back again to the point of trials, that the point of trials is to bring us, give us wisdom, to make us wise. This is the argument that, that Hebrews makes in Hebrews 12, right? What does the Father do with those whom He loves? He chastens them. He disciplines them, right? Um, if you're not being disciplined, it's because you're not being loved. 
And that, that's the argument that James is making here, that, that the suffering that is brought into your lives is actually for your good. And you don't have to be afraid because there's a man who transformed suffering, right? Who, who, who experienced all of it, who went to the very depths of hell and yet was raised up. And so we can be confident that whatever God brings into our lives, it is not as extreme as what he brought in the life of Jesus. And if he raised Jesus from the dead, he will raise us from the dead. He will crown us with the crown of life. He will give us the things which he promises to give us, um, even in the, in, the, in the midst of of death and passing away. And then he concludes his argument. He says, of his own will, that is the Father's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Who is the word of truth? It's Jesus, right? I mean, it also could refer to the gospel um, being preached, but I think it, you know, it, it is a connection back to um, that Isaiah 40 passage we read earlier. The word of the Lord stands forever. The word of truth, there's a connection there. Um, but I think it also is reference to the person of Christ. Um, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And this is, this is the story of this first generation of believers. They are a kind of first fruits of the harvest to come, right? It's a, it's a relatively small first fruits compared with the, you know, today there are, what, two billion Christians alive in the world right now, you know, which, which is insane. I mean, at this point, there are maybe a couple thousand, you know, maybe 5,000. I mean, just think about the, the way in which the church grew. But that, these, these people, they didn't see that. They didn't see, you know, two billion Christians 2,000 years later. Um, they just knew about their own experience and their own, um, uh, they could look around, they could, you know, they could count the Christians um, that they knew them all, you know, they could all get in one room together. Um, and, but James is saying, you're first fruits, right? You're first fruits. Who also was first fruits? Jesus, right? Colossians refers to Jesus as the firstborn of the dead, right? The first fruits of the resurrection. This is the argument James is making again and again. As with Jesus, so with you. As with Jesus, so with you. Whenever you're tempted to doubt God's character, remember, did God the Father abandon God the Son in the grave? He did not. He did not. He raised him up. He set him at his right hand. He gave him all things. Um, God also has not abandoned you. God also is going to be good to you. Um, he is your elder brother. The see of the same father. That whole, that whole idea. All right, any final thoughts or questions before we close with prayer this morning? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, it's basically the same argument as to a different group. So here it's to Jewish believers, largely there it's to the Gentile believers, largely, but all under the heading of persevere, hold fast, crown of life. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, yeah, I didn't make that connection, but actually in Revelation 2, I should have brought that out. That's one of the things that, that same phrase, crown of life, is promised um, through the writings of John to one of the churches there. If you remain steadfast in persecution, you will receive the crown of life. That same exact, yeah, it is an interesting connection. Yeah, and that, this is really, this is such a prominent theme in the New Testament, this idea of, of being steadfast, immovable, trusting in the Lord. Yes, sir, Jeff.
Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And Jews even from the beginning. Huh. Right. That's fascinating. That's cool. Right. He is. All right. One more. James did his hand up and we're going to have to wrap up. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a. You're right. That's a rich background for that. For that passage. Yeah. And even, even at the end of Psalm one, what is what is the unrighteous? What are the unright? What is the righteous man like? He's like a tree, right? Blooms in every season. What is the unrighteous like? Wind or chaff that the wind blows away, right? Life or death. Those are the those are the options. Those what stand before us. Good. All right. Let's stand and pray. Father, we're thankful for this. Um, even this section of the book of James. We're thankful for how he uh, holds forth before us the person of Jesus and points to him as one who remained steadfast under trial and received, after he had passed the test, the crown of life. Father, help us to be those who walk in the way of Jesus, who um, trust that you are always good. You are always good, Father, um, even in the midst of death and suffering and the things you bring in our lives sometimes. You are still good, and we can trust you. We can trust you um, because you have been good to Jesus. You have been faithful to your promises to him. We know that as we are found in him, you will also be faithful to us. We pray that you help us to believe this, Father, um, from our hearts. Do it by your spirit. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.